Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a deal brokered by China between bitter enemies Saudi Arabia and Iran to restore diplomatic relations, which casts China as a peacemaker in a region where the U.S. has fought in three disastrous and destructive wars with little to show for the estimated $8 trillion invested. Joining us is Graham Fuller, a former vice chairman of the National Intelligence Council at the CIA, who lived and worked in the Muslim world for nearly two decades and finished his career at a four-year post in Hong Kong. Currently a professor of history at Simon Fraser University in Canada, he is fluent in Russian, Mandarin and Arabic and is the author of numerous books about the Middle East, including The Future of Political Islam and Turkey and the Arab Spring, Leadership in the Middle East. And we will discuss his article at Responsible Statecraft in Great Power Diplomacy, Is China Beating the U.S. at Its Own Game? Then we'll examine the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, from which almost half of all tech startups got their venture capital in the second largest bank failure in U.S. history and the biggest since the 2008 crash. Joining us is Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. He's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, and his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, a Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. We will discuss his latest article at Forbes, No, It Isn't a Bailout, and It's Time to Afford Risk Price Insurance, to all bank deposits in full. Then we'll get another perspective on the SVB bank failure and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's assurance that the public will not bail out banks as it did in 2008. Joining us is James Henry, an economist, lawyer and investigative journalist who has written extensively about global banking, debt crises, tax havens and economic development. The former chief economist at McKinsey & Company, he is the co-founder with David K. Johnson of the new investigative reporting news service DCReport.org and is the author of Blood Bankers. We will discuss his latest article at DCReport.org. So Silicon Valley wants a bailout. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Graham Fuller, the former vice chairman of the National Intelligence Council at the CIA, who lived and worked in the Muslim world for nearly two decades and finished his career at a four-year post in Hong Kong. 
Currently, he's a professor of history at Simon Fraser University in Canada, and he is fluent in Russian, Mandarin, and Arabic, and is the author of numerous books about the Middle East, including The Future of Political Islam and Turkey and the Arab Spring, Leadership in the Middle East. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, In Great Power Diplomacy, Is China Beating the U.S. at Its Own Game? Welcome to Background Briefing, Graham Fuller. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And China, having brokered this peace agreement, well, at least it could lead to peace in between these two bitter enemies, Saudi Arabia and Iran. They've agreed to establish diplomatic relations. And as your article at Responsible Statecraft points out, Graham, the U.S. has this peculiar policy of not talking to its enemies. And you would think in statecraft and diplomacy, the priority would be to talk to enemies because that's where the problem is. But we have a system where we believe that talking to our enemies somehow legitimizes them. Is that, is that an explanation for our policy? Yeah, exactly. I think, well, and the belief somehow that if we refuse to talk to them, that this uh, imposes unbearable pressure um, upon the other state. But uh, yeah, it's a little bit, um, it's utterly self-defeating. And the number of countries and peoples and leaders that we can't talk to or won't talk to grows all the time. And uh, leaving space open for countries like China or many others that don't, do not take that, that um, very narrow approach to diplomacy. So do you think that the fact that the Chinese are engaging in countries, particularly in the global south, with economic engagement and attempts at brokering peace, is that a winning message? Is that, does that explain why the global south, for example, does not support the United States in terms of its support for Ukraine in the war with Russia? Well, certainly the global south in general has has been growing in strength, economic and 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 uh, diplomatic over the past many years. Um, I think for a long time, the global south, so-called, really felt that it couldn't push back against the seemingly uh, monolithic power uh, of the U.S. as sole global superpower. But that's changed, as we as we both we both know and they're in, they're now really looking after their own interests far more. Um, and China, I think, is, has a more sensitive touch, surprisingly perhaps at this point, but has a more sensitive touch to what those aspirations um, of other countries are and perceives that the U.S. is not particularly sensitive um, to it, to those interests. I, I think you noticed in that piece that I did, Ian, that uh, sadly, American policy, which I think used to be a very uh, positive and forward-looking one, say, after World War II and for many, many decades thereafter, did look at what the needs of the globe globe and, and other countries were in terms of development. But as we fell into this after the Soviet Union collapsed, we we sort of fell in, into this inebriated state that we had become the world's global superpower, and that was we were going to maintain that position at all costs. Which means that the basic, it seems to me, the basic foreign policy goal of the U.S. today is to block Russia and block China. 
that may make sense to some in Washington, but I don't think it makes sense to most of the rest of the world. But that period between the collapse of the Soviet Union and today has done nothing but being the lone superpower rather than become a, a force for constructive engagement around the world. We strutted our stuff on the world stage. In fact, Paul Wolfowitz, specifically to get into Iraq, said, look, this is the time for us now that we're the lone superpower. This is the time for us to impose our will on the world. And look where that got us in Iraq, Afghanistan, you name it. I mean, we might as well dug a huge hole in the Middle East and poured, what, seven, eight trillion dollars into the sand? Yeah, not to mention Syria as well, which is still an ongoing, ongoing tragedy. Yeah, I think um, I think China has been sensitive to to um, what we used to call third world or developing global south. Um, is very important, particularly since I think some a few leaders have explicitly said when the U.S. has leaned on them to support uh, condemnation of of everything Russian uh, relating to Ukraine and elsewhere, um, they've said frankly that's that's not our fight, and some have even suggested this is an old imperialist white man's uh, fight from the old days, but that's not where their interests or future or future concerns lie. Well, yeah, that applies to our neighbor and to the south, AMLO, Lopez Obrador in Mexico. Absolutely. He basically told Biden that, you know, <laughs> I'm not joining in. Yeah, and that's quite extraordinary given the fact that Mexico, I've often... Uh, Mentioned when people say, why can't Ukraine have the foreign policy and associations that it would like to have instead of being told by Russia? I think Mexico has been very much in that position for a very long time as well. I mean, can you imagine Mexico saying, you know, we are going to open a Chinese military base in Mexico uh, to help preserve our own national sovereignty? Uh, how long do you think that would last before the U.S. would come moving in ferociously to put an end to that kind of thing, like like the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I think I think it's it's unusual for for smaller countries to start speaking up. But for Mexico to do so, particularly on the border of the U.S., is 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 quite striking. So given that there's this Zeidenwender turning point going on now in Germany and previously the Social Democrats had a policy, Wandeldrecht Handel, uh, peace through trade, essentially. And that that is now, of course, blown up in Germany's face because of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Is there something similar in a way that the U.S. invested heavily in China to get their economies entangled? Massive amounts of investments came from Wall Street and corporate America into China, helping build up China to become an economic superpower. At the same time that we were investing in China, our government was wasting trillions in this pointless and destructive wars in the Middle East. I mentioned earlier how, you know, eight trillion or so just completely wasted along with millions of lives. And we've ended up absolutely bankrupt, and now the Chinese are stepping in and, and becoming the kind of peace brokers. 
and all we're left with is the hope that somehow we can broker a deal with between Saudi Arabia and Israel, uh, which is increasingly unlikely as the Palestinians get more and more restive. So is there something to that idea that we look back in history and wonder why it is that the U.S. invested so heavily in China to create an economic interdependence, and but now that's being challenged by hawks on our side who seem to want to have a new Cold War. And if we start sanctioning China, then, you know, we're going to be heading in that direction. In the meantime, while investing in China, we were wasting money in the Middle East. So is that a fair way to look at, at, at this broad stroke of history? Well, you put forward a uh, formidable list of uh, shortcomings and failures of U.S. policy in many places. Let me just start by addressing one thing about the investment, uh, U.S. investment in China uh, over an earlier decade. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that this had to have been a colossal mistake or, or a blunder. For one thing, um, as you probably noted, Ian, in reading my piece in uh, Responsible Statecraft, I'm starting to simply challenge the very question of why do we automatically assume that we have to have conflict? There's no, there are very few automatic conflicts in the world. Conflicts come about by human choice. One or two leaders, at the very least, can pull this off. So why... The question is really, do we have to have a hostile relationship with China? Um, one, I think one quite striking fact is that the U.S. is very quick off the mark. Our state, our, our secretaries of state and others to simply describe China as leading uh, competitor or even leading global adversary in the world. Well, what does that tell you? If I tell you, Ian, that I view you as a, as a considerable rival or even threat to me, uh, that begins to flavor the relationship between you and me automatically. Now, China has not chosen to go that path by identifying the U.S. as global competitor or global threat or whatever in those terms. So I think merely the language alone, I, I don't want to say the language can stop or, or start war, but it it's opens in an atmosphere of hostility and adversarial relationships that don't necessarily have to be. And that's why I think China saw this perhaps in the case of uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, Many so-called scholars of the Middle East would say, "Ah, oh, well, you know, this is in the this is in the essence of things that Saudis Saudis are Sunni and Iraq uh, Iranians are Shiite, so they hate each other." And the idea that this is somehow something written in stone for all time, uh, China has clearly challenged that that view by simply saying, "Look, there are grounds to work this out. We don't have to declare the others as the adversary for all time." So here, here it's where I think the U.S. maybe can 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 think about how much it wants to declare others uh, automatically as the enemy, which is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, as your article at Responsible Statecraft in Great Power Diplomacy is China beating the U.S. at its own game points out, uh, Graham Fuller, that 
the English and the French were sworn enemies. They fought 23 wars from the 13th century to the 19th century, and then they suddenly stopped fighting, and best friends except, I guess, for Brexit, which is a self-inflicted wound on the part of the Brits. And the same is true of, of France and Germany from the 16th century to the end of World War II. They were bitter enemies, and now they're very, very close friends. So these things aren't inevitable. But in the case of China, there's no real history of enmity. It seems to me that during the period when China was looted by the European powers and weakened in the Opium Wars, etc., the U.S. was the least rapacious of the colonial powers. Is that yeah. true? Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. Indeed, uh, I think most of the early American experiences with China came through missionaries, um, Christian missionaries to China. Uh, we can have differing views on what we think of, uh, of the role of missionaries internationally, but it was not essentially, uh, from the outset at least, a military relationship. But this has become more, as you know, seen through a military lens as the United States looks around the world. Uh, when you have a defense budget that's, that's the equal of the next seven military powers in the world, um, you've got an army and as some former Secretary of State said, if, you, if we have this beautiful army, why can't we use it? So I think, you know, or what the other cliche is, if, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, I think the idea of diplomacy and there are ways to talk through these things, they can be resolved. I, I don't want to suggest that simply being nice and, and warm to other people solves all problems. It won't. There are genuine problems there. But at this point, if the United States is dedicated to the idea of blocking Russia, blocking China, and their influence uh, and role in the world, then the U.S. starts automatically to look for for instruments, tools by which to weaken and push China back. Uh, and Taiwan, of course, is one of them. Um, Taiwan, as we now see, is in a sense almost artificially being whipped up into a very, very dangerous uh, potential confrontation when, in theory, it does not have to be. And uh, former American diplomats, you know, Kissinger and, and back in the day, uh, agreed that perhaps not to talk about Taiwan at all would be perhaps the best way. Don't, don't ask, don't tell. But we've abandoned that now because I think American policy is indeed to weaken China, block China wherever, wherever we can. And the same applies to Russia with this push up. And I would argue in any case that Ukraine was a war that did not have to be, but the U.S. was determined to push NATO as a hostile military organization right up to the very gates of Russia. And that, that's, again, it's again a conflict that's, that does not automatically have to be. There may be problems, but they can be worked out if you're not declaring the other side as, as, as your enemy. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Graham Fuller, it would seem to me that the solution is staring us in the face, and that is how we won the Cold War, which, of course, dancing in the end zone was the worst thing that we ever did. But nevertheless, what really happened was it wasn't our missiles and, and nuclear weapons pointed at Russia that ended 
the Cold War and brought about the end of the Soviet Union. It was it was American soft power. It was blue jeans and rock and roll. And so rather than confront and try and stop these powers like Russia and China, why don't we compete in the way that we won, and I use that word advisedly, the Cold War? In other words, why not have a soft power competition with Russia and China as opposed to a military competition which, given nuclear weapons on all sides, could lead to the end of the world? Sure, um, but I think I, I increasingly, sadly, in fact, tend to think of the United States now as almost a, a um, you know, a, a tired old boxer who still wants to clamber back in the ring and prove that he's still number one in the world and can take on any competitor. Um, I think if the U.S. can get off this mindset that it must maintain the, its role as glo sole global superpower or or whatever, however it chooses to describe itself, that would go a long way towards acceptance of a of a multipolar world, which is perhaps the more normal state of affairs in any case throughout human history. Um, so, I, but I don't know how ready. I think the American public might be ready for it if the realities are presented properly, but certainly. Uh, the cold warriors who now dominate uh, 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 in Biden's administration um, don't want to have it that way. They they're still longing for the day when the the old boxer could could call all the shots in the ring. Well, just in closing, it's the divisions within America and the paralysis of our politics that may end up weakening us even more and again like Brexit was a self-inflicted wound on the part of the Brits if the Republicans crash the economy over the debt ceiling then the US is going to lose enormously in terms of the value of the dollar as a reserve currency so maybe at the end of the day we are our own worst enemies well yes and um, furthermore I mean the cost of empire is staggering um, to maintain when 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 we feel that we have to intervene around the world militarily all the time and spending you know millions and trillions of dollars that that is indeed the self-inflicted wound when you consider the weaknesses and 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 um, uh, splits within the United States and um, how much that military budget even half of it could go towards providing, um, food, towards providing housing and full medical care and better education and especially improving this, the educational status of, of minorities, et cetera, et cetera. Those would go a long way towards healing the domestic problems that we have uh, ignored in this foolish uh, quest to maintain um, global dominance. It's it's gonna. It's die, It will die hard. This idea, but I think it's coming. And the Chinese now have uh, has have 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 challenged us on this quite directly in a in a sphere that we thought was all our own. I would I would just add. There's no way that the U.S. could have pulled off a rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and and Iran because it doesn't want that rapprochement. It prefers the hostilities between Saudi Arabia and Iran in its undying determination to overthrow the Iranian regime as well. I have no great, great, great um, 
brief for the Iranian uh, regime. But I think, again, uh, if, if all we use are military uh, instruments and brutal sanctions, then we're guaranteed to have have very bad relations with um, with Iran. But we to to much of the world, it was good news that that Iran and Saudi Arabia may not be at loggers head loggers head anymore. But for Washington, it was the bad news. And that's sad. Well, Graham Fuller, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian, very much. And again, I'll be speaking with Graham Fuller, the former vice chairman of the National Intelligence Council at the CIA, who lived and worked in the Muslim world for nearly two decades and finished his career at a four-year post in Hong Kong. Currently, he's a professor of history at Simon Fraser University in Canada. He is fluent in Russian, Mandarin, Arabic, and is the author of numerous books about the Middle East, including The Future of Political Islam and Turkey and the Arab Spring, Leadership in the Middle East. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, In Great Power Diplomacy, Is China Beating the U.S. at Its Own Game? We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, the second largest bank failure in U.S. history and the biggest since the 2008 crash. The newborn in the hammock rocks Below a bolted sky that unlocks For the departing of the flock from the shadow of an empire God loves a triad An articulate liar The auctioneer makes it clear and booms Can you bid any higher? Or is the gentleman at the back a buyer? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy and is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. His latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. And he has an article at Forbes, What Then to Do Going Forward? How do we keep banks like SVB rather than handing them over to the Wall Street Big Five while also avoiding debacles like that of last week? Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Hockett. Thanks, Ian. Really great to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And what I'm sort of reading in the press now about the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, which was one of the main sources of venture capital funds for startups in the Silicon Valley, and given how important the Silicon Valley is to American innovation, that in itself is alarming. But it seems that you can point the finger at two people, Jerome Powell for raising interest rates unnecessarily, Mm -hmm. and Donald Trump for gutting the Dodd-Frank regulations for smaller banks, requiring them to have stress tests and have more money on deposit. So Mm -hmm. am I right at pointing the finger in those directions? 
I think you're right to do so. I think there are a couple of additional fingers um, <laughs> that we can add, but it's also worth noting maybe that Powell, of course, was a, a Trump appointee, but I, I do think that they are two of the principal culprits. Um, another possible culprit or group of culprits were the short sellers, right, who are always out there ready to kind of short sell uh, bank stock in order essentially to crash them after they've effectively sort of bet on the bank failures. And there's some evidence, it's not clear yet, but there's some evidence that some of that might have been going on here as well. But in essence, what we've got here is a story of a bank that in many ways did everything right. Not in every way, of course, but in many ways, they sort of have been doing what we kind of were calling for banks to do after 2008. And that is, of course, to become boring again. And by boring, I mean two things, right? First of all, actually making loans in the real economy, the primary markets where things are actually made, rather than in the secondary uh, financial markets and the tertiary derivatives markets. And it is not without significance, it seems to me, that the entire loan book of SVB, that's to say all the loans that were made to startup companies, tech companies and the like, were all performing. There's no suggestion that there was any trouble with those loans or that there were any delinquencies or what have you. In stark contrast, of course, to the loans uh, that were on the books in 2008, and secondly, any surplus beyond that was invested in U.S. Treasury securities, which are, of course, what the Fed is itself invested in under QE, and which, of course, receive a zero risk weighting under all the capital regulatory regimes that we've ever had. And so, you know, in that sense, this was a boring bank. It was doing what we want banks to do. The one exception to that that we know of at the moment, well, maybe two exceptions, but the one, the main exception is they don't appear to have done any very smart hedging against interest rate risk, which is usually something that you do, but sort of in their defense, Powell has raised rates at a rate that we haven't seen for over 45 years, not since the late 70s during the um, uh, the Paul Volcker uh, period. 450 basis points in less than a year is kind of jaw-dropping. And so in some ways, it's kind of borderline force majeure, right? Borderline act of God or act of Fed. Um, so that it maybe they should have hedged against that, but it's worth noting that the Fed has actually lost immensely on its own portfolio because it's invested in the same things. The only difference, of course, is that the Fed can't fail. The Fed isn't a business and isn't subject to a profit imperative like SVB was. The second partial sort of quasi-mistake here, but I, I feel much more sort of hesitant about this one, is that lots of the firms that were saving in SVB, of course, had accounts in excess of the FDIC $250,000 cap. In their defense, however, these are big industrial companies, and these industrial companies have big operating expenses on a daily basis, not the least of them huge payrolls that they have to make. And so against that backdrop, a $250,000 transaction account is just chump change, it's peanuts. And so what we really need to do, as I've written in these two Forbes articles that you kindly uh, noted, uh, is update the federal deposit insurance system in a way that we began to do in 2005, but didn't finish. So in 2005, what we did is we introduced risk pricing uh, to the premiums that are paid for deposit insurance on the one hand. And we also, of course, began making assessments not during crises, but between crises, just like, you know, Joseph 
in the biblical story about the seven uh, fat years and the seven lean years, we started making the assessments during the fat years so that the account would be topped off and you know nice and full before crises happened. That was all good. It's a good thing that we did that. But what we don't seem to have noticed is that once we moved to a risk-based insurance premium system, as we did in 2005 by law, we rendered the $250,000 cap sort of irrelevant or sort of obsolete because that was geared to a time before we did risk pricing of the insurance. And so at this point, it makes much more sense, I think, simply to eliminate the cap to ensure these deposits in full, but continue, of course, to risk price the insurance on the one hand and also perhaps segment the accounts by size so that we maybe there are fees assessed against the larger funds, I mean, sorry, the larger deposits that we're uh, insuring while continuing not to assess fees against uh, smaller fry depositors like you or me, whose accounts both, I assume, are below 250000 <laughs> A safe assumption. So, um, in other words, the bank did the right thing in terms of hedging, but not sufficiently, and it bought treasuries. But then Powell jacked up the interest rates and the treasuries that they had yielded much more than the new treasuries, right? And that, exactly, exactly. But in terms of deposits at this bank, above mm -hmm. the 250000 insured by the FDIC, mm -hmm. Circle, which is a crypto operation, they mm -hmm. had $3.3 on deposit. Roku, $487 million. BlockFi, $227 million. Mm -hmm. Roblox, these are all startups. I haven't heard half of them. Roblox, $150 million. Ginkgo Bio, $74 million. iRhythm, $55 million. Rocket Labs, $38 million. Sangano Therapeutics, $34 million. Lending Club, $21 million. And Payoneer, $20 million. So what happens to those people? So they are all now protected, essentially owing to the uh, the announcement made yesterday, right, by Fed, Treasury, and FDIC. It's important to note that this is not a taxpayer bailout, at least not at this juncture, right? Because thanks to the uh, risk-based regular premium assessment system that I mentioned before was put into place back in 2005, the Federal Deposit Insurance Fund, or what's sometimes called the DIF, the Deposit Insurance Fund, is massive. It's got multi-billions in it, right? So all of the payments or all of the, the sort of payments to the, um, the depositors to make sure that they're kept whole are going to be made out of two sources. One is all of those treasuries that SVB was already holding. Those are all being liquidated. And it's important to know that that those were almost enough to cover all of the deposits, right? There was only a, the tiniest of shortfalls owing to the sudden devaluation of those treasuries, thanks to Powell's crazy rate hikes. So that's going to be the primary source of essentially ensuring that those deposits are, are fully available. And then the little bit of overage that will, there will be beyond that will be coming out of the DIF. And it'll be just a drop in the bucket as far as its size relative to the size of the DIF is concerned. And again, all of that fund has been funded by premiums that we've been assessing against banks ever since 2005. So going back to 2008 and before that, it's, I think, widely understood that the mistake was made uh, during the Clinton administration of basically dismantling the Glass-Siegel Act, which came into place after the 29 crash and survived for many decades until uh, Robert Rubin and Larry Summons urged Clinton to get rid of it. Then you had Greenspan at the Fed, and he's a disciple of Ayn Rand, it's just so interesting in it. Whenever you have these bank crashes, the libertarians suddenly go silent. 
Yes. <laughs> Don't hear a word from them now, do we? Right. Yeah. I mean, all of that was a, was terribly wrong-headed, and all of that was part of the great financialization wave that sort of swept over the country over the course of the later 80s, 90s, and well into the 2000s. And of course, we saw the upshot in 2008. And of course, you'll recall that one of the things that people sort of called for after that happened was, you know, they were saying it's time for banks to get boring again. And in a certain sense, ironically, SVB was precisely one of those sort of boring banks. Now, I, I know that the tech sector is not itself boring. And of course, it's always the case that any sector with lots of startups is going to see many more failures than successes. I mean, typically, you know, for every iPhone or for every Tesla, there are probably a million cylindras or whatever. But that's how that industry works. And it's better that banks be doing the financing, I think, than that shadow banks be doing it or that derivatives markets be doing it or that, you know, uh, 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 Jamie Dimon, you know, Jamie come to Papa Dimon and the JP Morgan Chase Bank or Wall Street be running all this stuff. Uh, you and I have talked quite a few times about the need to sort of reindustrialize industrialize the country and sort of lead the world on all of the green eco-friendly technologies and industries of tomorrow. And if we're going to do that, my guess is we're going to, that's a return to industri an industrially based economy. And that means we're going to have to return to um, a kind of institution that used to be more common as well, namely industrial banks. And so they're going to be a lot of sector specific industrial banks. In effect, they're going to be industry specific credit unions like SBB was, where these people are in effect lending to and borrowing from one another. But in order for all of that to work and for it not to sort of, you know, fall apart and thus imperil the reindustrialization effort itself, we have to make sure that these things are safe. But we have a very straightforward way of doing that, I think. And that is simply to keep using the FDIC system that we sensibly modernized in 2005, but not modernize it just one step further. And that is, again, to ensure all accounts in full, but to segment the accounts so that we charge higher fees for the bigger accounts and no fees at all for the smaller accounts, but we continue to risk base um, uh, the premiums that are that we charge, and we continue to impose the capital regulations that the FDIC always does as a part of its administration of the deposit insurance fund. So going back to Dodd-Frank, which followed 2008 crash and was meant to plug the loopholes, it was obviously a compromise. In fact, I remember talking to Barney Frank about it at the time. The banking lobby still was alive. And remember, it was the American taxpayer that bailed out Wall Street in 2008. And I think that was turned out to be a catastrophic move on Obama's part. It led to the Tea Party, which has now morphed into the uh, Freedom Caucus. So they're not wrong they're being outraged, right? That Main Street gets hosed in order to revive Wall Street for their reckless successes. So you got this compromise known as Dodd-Frank, which requires banks to have stress tests, etc., and keep more money on deposit. And then along comes Donald Trump and with Jay Powell among his advisors, and they, you know, reduce the stress test for these regional banks and reduce the amount of money they have to hold on deposit. So there's, a, again, a, a direct cause and effect, isn't there? I think it's possible that this had an effect, although it's a little less clear precisely what effect it actually had, at least in this particular case. Now, as you'll remember, you and I have talked before, I testified before House Financial Services back in 2015 and was also quite active in 2017 and 2018 to try to prevent 
any rollback or any sort of fallback away from Dodd-Frank, which as you, I think, rightly noted, was already a compromise to begin with. So the idea of compromising it further was a, a, an exceedingly bad idea. And I think Katie Porter is right to want to sort of reinstate the regime that we had in place before the partial rollback in 2018. We have to do that anyway, it seems to me. That's just something that ought to be done, irrespective of what happens to or what happens to SVB or its depositors. As to whether or not that itself was sort of key here, I think that's a little bit more in question, essentially for the following reason. There's been no suggestion at all that the portfolio itself of SVB was somehow improvidently formed or was improvidently put together or was somehow excessively risky or what have you. Again, the only thing that wasn't adequately hedged against was interest rate risk, which came so fast and so furious that very few institutions were probably fully hedged against that and fully you know, ready to deal with it. The only thing that would have been different under the previous regime is that the bank would have been large enough to fall under the requirement for so-called enhanced prudential regulation. But all that means then is that the regulators would have custom designed essentially a risk regulatory program for SVB and whether or not they would have said, okay, look, we need more hedging against Fed interest rate risk here is hard to tell, right? Because again, so few people seem to have seen that coming that it's not altogether clear that the regulators would have described this at the time, you know, before um, the last year or two as a serious risk. So what is the um, situation now in terms of plugging the holes in the, the leaking dam. You've got Signature Bank in New York is also closed down on Sunday. I think a lot of British banks are having a hard time too. On CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday, Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen said there were no taxpayers' money involved. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. For the moment, that's true, right? Everything is coming out of the deposit insurance fund, which, as I mentioned before, or I should say all of the overage, everything that's not covered already by the loan book and by the uh, by the Treasury's uh, portfolio is coming out of the DIF. And because the overwhelmingly greater part is just coming out of the liquidated Treasury's portfolio, there's just a bit that's going to come out of the DIF for this. And there's plenty. There's much, much, much more in the DIF than what would be required for the present circumstance. That being said, I do have one concern, and it's basically this. The Fed has this way of being a bit too clever by half when it comes to innovating new quote-unquote facilities for various exigencies that come up from time to time. You know, they're always acronyms, but they always end with the letter F for facility. And that was fine. That kind of creative facility create that creative facility construction on the fly uh, in some ways was helpful in 2008 and in some ways was helpful in 2020, right, at the beginning of the, of the pandemic. But at the present context, I think it might be a little too clever by half in the sense that it's not entirely transparent to everybody exactly what the nature of this facility is and what its terms are going to be. And in some cases, complications or compl complexities like that are inevitable. But in the present case, they're not because there's a very simple fix that could be communicated very clearly and simply to the entire public and thereby forestall any further possible bank run activity. And that is just the little tweaks to the FDI system that I mentioned before, just the extension to cover all deposits with continued risk pricing on the one hand and a sort of tiered structure of assessments uh, according to size of deposit on the other hand. That would be simply conveyed, simply understandable, and it would remove all ambiguity, all uncertainty, and thereby remove all of the kinds of fears that sort of lead to continued runs on banks. 
I've written up uh, a draft bill for this. It only takes a page. It's that simple that the draft bill only requires one, one page to elaborate. And as you can imagine, I've got some congressmen friends who are going to be introducing that in Congress. So I'm hoping that Congress can act quickly uh, to pass something like this, just quickly update, modernize, complete the job of 2005 uh, to the federal deposit insurance system. And then I think we'll be golden as far as the present you know, problems are concerned. So just in closing, you don't see a run. This is not Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, I think there is a, a danger of continued running if we don't do precisely what I've just been suggesting. Right. I think because there's still some ambiguity and some uncertainty about the precise terms of and the precise applicability of this new, quote unquote, facility that they announced yesterday. So I think if we really want to make sure that no further running happens, I think we have to do the thing that I've just proposed. Well, Robert Hawkins, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Such a pleasure always, Ian. Thanks so much, my friend. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislatures and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. He's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. His latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. And uh, he has an article at Forbes, What Then to Do Going Forward? How do we keep banks like SVB rather than handing them over to the Wall Street Big Five while also avoiding debacles like that of last week? We're going to take a brief station break back with another perspective on the Silicon Valley Bank failure and uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's assurance that the public will not bail out banks as it did in 2008. When you deposit tuppence in a bank account, soon you'll see that it blooms into credit of a generous amount semi-annually. And you'll achieve that sense of stature as your influence expands. To the high financial strata that established credit now commands. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Henry, an economist, lawyer, and investigative journalist who's written extensively about global banking, debt crises, tax havens, and economic development. The former chief economist at McKinsey & Company, he's the co-founder with David K. Johnson of the new investigative reporting news service, dcreport.org and is the author of Blood Bankers, and his latest article at dcreport.org is So Silicon Valley Wants a Bailout. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Henry. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Jim. And do you agree with what Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said on CBS's uh, Sunday morning program, where she said that no taxpayer money will be involved in the bailout of the Silicon Valley Bank? Well, literally true. That's true. But in fact, what the Fed is doing is actually a bailout in the sense that they are allowing the prospective buyer and probably another bank will come along sometime this week 
to buy uh, the assets uh, and, uh, you know, sort of pay back the depositors uh, at kind of mark to market at, at, at kind of a book value price that doesn't record the fact that there's been a lot of uh, <laughs> downgrading of the value of those assets. And so effectively, there is uh, a federal loan going to this buyer uh, at, at the full market value, at the full um, uh, uh, book value of uh, those bonds that uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank had on its uh, on its books. And, you know, that is, in effect, a subsidy because, in fact, those bonds are worth a lot less. So the the. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways uh, to look at this story, but I think one of the uh, the, the patterns here that's evolved is that the Federal Reserve has been a little bit too kind to these financial institutions. So the Federal Reserve uh, policy has been pursuing an anti-inflation policy of raising interest rates, and that's run head on into uh, its kind of lax banking regulation. Uh, you know, Gary Becker, the, the head of uh, uh, SVP, was on the Federal Reserve Board in California. He was a big contributor, uh, especially to Democrats. Uh, he lobbied extensively for weaker bank regulation uh, for banks that were like his under the $250 billion threshold. Uh, and I think he succeeded in, in you know, <laughs> allowing the bank to get away with uh, some behavior here that's now in retrospect uh, pretty dubious. But then he ran into Jay Powell, who raised interest rates rapidly, and the bank had secured a lot of treasury bills, and the sudden raise in interest rates made them less attractive than the higher interest-paying bills, and he gets stuck with that, right? Isn't that what Well, happened? that is one, one contributor to this phenomenon, but uh, this bank in particular uh, you know, only had about... Uh, <laughs> 98% of its deposits in the bank were uninsured. It's more than uh, $175 billion of uninsured deposits. Uh, and this was all from a coterie of some of the world's leading fintech companies, uh, Silicon Valley companies like Circle. Uh, they parked $3.3 billion of uh, deposits in, in SVP. Uh, Bill.com had $670 million. You know, the only, the limit on uh, deposit insurance that the FDIC gives to banks is $250,000 uh, per account. And, you know, you can stretch that various ways, but it's hard to get it above a million bucks per account. So, you know, the question that's one question that's raised here is what were these uh, uh, these tech companies doing by banking with this one bank? And I think if we had a chance to really research that, uh, you know, the Fed's rapid moves here has made that difficult, we would find out that there were a lot of back-to-back -back loans going on from some of the CEOs and founders of these tech companies uh, who like to deduct the interest, to, uh, you know, and, and not pay any taxes. Uh, and so, you know, the condition of getting these big deposits was that they would get low interest loans back to them uh, from Silicon Valley Bank. We can't know that now because the Fed is basically selling the bank to somebody else. This will all be off off limits uh, to outsiders, and we'll never probably know even the full list of, uh, of depositors uh, that were at Silicon Valley Bank. But reportedly, they banked to, uh, you know, uh, nearly half of all VC-backed startups in the United States. 
and they had extraordinary influence. And the reason, and the question is why? Why would they all gather at this one rather poorly unhedged bank? Um, you know, they didn't even have a, a risk management officer at SVB all last year. <laughs> so there are a lot of factors that contributed at the macro level, the, certainly the Federal Reserve policy and, and uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of surprising interest rate uh, increase that he introduced, that uh, the chairman introduced just uh, 10 days ago, had uh, undoubtedly caught some of these folks by surprise with their their huge uh, unhedged portfolios. But not every bank in the United States, uh, even of SVB's size, uh, you know, had a failure. The reason that we had these issues at SVB was because of, I would argue, because of these kind of management problems. So given that the Silicon Valley Bank funded almost half of all tech startups uh, with their venture capital, who's going to replace them? I mean, that sounds like you know, Silicon Valley's in trouble. Well, that is a great question. I mean, this is strikes right at the heart. You know, this is not some sultry tropical bank in some distant third world country. This is right at the core of the intersection of finance and high technology. And, you know, these are supposedly some of the most sophisticated uh, people in the world, including uh, experts on fintech, financial technology. So, you know, that's a good question. You had, uh, before the Fed made its move this morning, uh, which I was glad to see them do. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, you know, tech startups around the world that were saying, you know, how are we going to get paid? I mean, most of the uh, value added of tech companies is in the labor force. So you have all these, you know, sort of thousands and thousands of, uh, of developers. They're basically, you know, pretty much, yeah, they will live on equity, but they will, you know, on a week to week basis, they need to get, uh, uh, you know, they're rather <laughs> low incomes. And, uh, you know, these were all basically frozen for many companies. And in fact, there were companies that had just raised money on Tuesday and found that on Wednesday, their $2 million fundraising had been lost or been frozen at the, their account at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, look, I think this was partly sociology of uh, Silicon Valley. You know, it's like a lot of networking going on and incestuous you know, sort of, I can get you an account at this bank. It's a very interesting little club of people. You really want to know these folks and make the connections. That undoubtedly had something to do with it. But if any federal regulator worth his salt had taken a look at the concentration of these large uninsured deposits in this institution, uh, they would have raised a lot of questions. So, James Henry, then, I read somewhere that the British branch of the Silicon Valley Bank was sold for $1 to HSBC. Yeah, that's actually hilarious because <laughs> I w I've just been investigating HSBC for another whole case uh, involving the Department of Labor and qualified uh, pension asset managers. You know, HSBC, like Credit Suisse, has a list of uh, financial crimes uh, convictions uh, and settlements all over the world, as long as your arm, um, you know, something like uh, 56 uh, convictions between 2000 and 2023. And, you know, this is an institution that has uh, 457 uh, foreign subsidiaries around the world. And HSBCs uh, of that, uh, 305 of them are in tax havens. 
you know, there's there's 25 in mainland China. I mean, uh, 65 in Hong Kong. Um, you know, this is not an institution that we would have thought, you know, you'd like to really encourage uh, to be banking for, you know, high tech companies. But essentially, they've been able to buy up the UK, whatever the UK uh, branch of uh, uh, SVB amounted to, uh, you know, for a song. And, uh, you know, I think that's another decision that the Fed has to be held responsible for that could not have gone on without the Fed's approval. So given that during the Trump administration, they weakened the Dodd-Frank laws requiring these regional banks to have a stress test and also have more money on deposit. And I believe it was lobbying from SVP and along with Jay Powell that Trump signed off on. And so you have a direct consequence there, it would seem. Is well, Powell hard? has been light for light regulation. The, the tough regulator on the Fed just left. Uh, Leo Brainerd left to go to the White House. Uh, we'd like to get her back. <laughs> um, but no, I think there's a lot of fault to go around. You had very uh, close relationships between some of the California politicians and SVB as well. Uh, you know, uh, even Congressman Ro Kahana was <laughs> apparently close to the uh, to the bank. And, you know, their SVB mounted a kind of bipartisan effort to have uh, looser regulation in Washington. So there's plenty of fault to go around here. We're just at the beginning of understanding uh, all the, uh, uh, you know, the influence that was wielded by these institutions that failed. Barney Frank was on the board of the, of the New York Bank signature that just failed uh, today. You know, and that, that is... Um, you know, the, 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 uh, the story is going to be, uh, you know, this is this. I hope this doesn't become the really big short. But, you know, the issue is that we have here some of the most sophisticated uh, technology and banking people in the, in the world. And at this level, uh, this is a, a fundamental fiasco. It's very hard to make it look like an achievement. Well, it certainly does not a good look that Barney Frank, the co-author of the Dodd-Frank bill, which in itself was a compromise, which he managed to get done before he retired. But he's on the board of the bank that failed along with the SVB. The, that's right. The, uh, Signature Bank in New York. Yes, that's right. And, and uh, Signature Bank, before it failed, had been banking to Binance, which was, you know, was clearing U.S. dollars into this uh, crypto exchange that's owned by a, a Chinese magnate who's, you know, now in, in Dubai. I mean, he's kind of pretty close to the Chinese government, reportedly. But, you know, that's a kind of a questionable relationship. How could Signature be providing, uh, you know, sort of dollar exchanges for this this crypto market? You know, he was the guy that brought down FTX uh, back in uh, September. I mean, this seems like a long time ago now, uh, but he basically, uh, CZ is his name. Uh, but he was able to get Signature Bank to clear dollars for him. Now, that's, you know, undoubtedly, we, we're only at the beginning of understanding uh, and probably create uh, lifetime employment for some journalists to, to look at these institutions. But, you know, clearly they got close, too close to the fire here. But just in the last minute, are there more shoes to drop then? Well, today we've seen banks like uh, Western Alliance Bank and uh, uh, First Republic uh, you know, some other institutions uh, have very sharp drop in their stock values in the morning, uh, you know, by more than 60 percent. 
And, uh, you know, there's speculation that those folks also had some relationships in the crypto industry. Um, but in the afternoon, they recovered. So, you know, this is going to be a, this is an unfinished story. It's going to be going on for some time. The real dilemma that we're facing right now, I think we've got the, the fundamental banking system is sound. We've got this pretty much contained. There, there are about maybe $600 billion of uh, bank assets that have to be remarked to market, and that will affect some institutions. But by and large, I think the risk here now is that this will put uh, you know, some jeopardy in the Fed's attempt to get anything from raising interest rates in the way of fighting inflation, because essentially it's just uh, <clears throat> open uh, the valves again and, uh, and increased liquidity in the economy. And this is not what it wanted to do. So back to work, Washington, we really have to get serious about bank regulation. And that's what's been missing here. James Henry, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're very welcome. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. And again, I've been speaking with James Henry, an economist, lawyer, and investigative journalist who has written extensively about global banking, debt crises, tax havens, and economic development, the former chief economist at McKinsey & Company. He's the co-founder with David K. Johnson of the new investigative reporting news service, dcreport.org, and is the author of Blood Bankers. And his latest article at dcreport.org is, So Silicon Valley Wants a Bailout. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half